Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. This week, I came across a blogger who firmly believes that uh, his greatest challenge as a father wasn't changing nappies, it wasn't sleepless nights, or the complete reorientation of his life as he knew it, but the responsibility of raising and guiding his children toward a vibrant Christian faith and worldview. And one day it occurred to him that if he is to do this effectively and with integrity, he must examine his beliefs and his worldviews on a regular basis because they ultimately determine how he lives. And his blog, therefore, is a collection of his thoughts and reflections. That has nothing to do with the sermon whatsoever. But I share that because I think he offers, uh, offers fathers and parents and uh, potential parents some very sound and good advice. But the next bit does have to do with the sermon. He posted an article, and it begins with a conversation he had recently with his daughter, who is at an age where she's very, uh, she's, she's trying to assert her will, and she's very inquisitive about life, and uh, you know, at that stage of life, many interesting conversations and questions. She said to him, Daddy, I want to follow another God. I want to follow another God. He writes, quote, I didn't see that coming, but I managed to compose myself and ask, why is that, honey? Her answer was intriguing. Jesus is always telling me what to do. But I want to do what I want. I want to have fun. Jesus is not fun. And he doesn't let me do fun things. I had no inspired response, so I just retorted. He must have a sense of humor to make you. He continues, quote, Previously, I would have scolded her for such a question. But I'm learning to allow my kids to express their innermost thoughts so that I can counsel them better. Besides, rebuking her doesn't eliminate her question. Furthermore, she's asking a question many of us have asked or will ask at some point when we encounter choosing between self-determination and submission to God. When we choose, when we have to choose between self-determination and submission to God. And this, brothers and sisters, is the unavoidable conundrum and the challenge of placing our faith in God. From a very young age, we have been raised on a steady diet of self-determination. It is second nature to us. And so, over the years, we develop a very natural aversion to being told what to do. It's my life. Therefore, I can do whatever the hell I want. No one should make any decisions for me. It's my choice. And if I make a bad decision, I face the consequences alone. And then we grow up, and then we realize we can't do whatever we want in life. That's narcissism. That's selfishness. We realize we need to make compromises in relationships, such as in marriage and in our workplaces. You've got to give some to get some. And then we become Christians. And we might get better at that. You've got to give some to get some. 
But if we're honest with ourselves, we're just as self-determined and independent as ever, and that carries into our relationship with God. I submit to you this morning that our self-determination is an impediment to having and growing our faith in God in response to Jesus' command to us in Mark eleven twenty two, have faith in God, that our self-determination is an impediment to Jesus' command to us because faith involves a submission to and trust in God's will, God's way, and God's timing, an act that is so counterintuitive to our self-determined ways. Faith involves a submission to and trust in God's will, God's way, and God's timing. And this is what I want to address as we consider our text this morning, beginning at verses 39 to 45 of Luke chapter 1. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. Last week, we unpacked the story of two impossible births, one involving Elizabeth, an old barren woman, and the other is Elizabeth's cousin, Mary, a virgin. They would be mums to John and Jesus, respectively, with John as the messenger who would precede the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Understandably, understandably, Elizabeth's husband, Zachariah, and Mary, who received the news, wrestled with the question, how can this be? How can this impossible birth take place? And the answer comes from Gabriel, who said to Mary in verse 37, chapter 1, no word from God will ever fail. No word from God will ever fail. God is able, and he will do what he says. These two supernatural births represent the fulfillment of God's plan that has been thousands of years in the making, spoken by the prophets and reinforced in the hymns of praise written by Mary and Zechariah, commonly referred to as the Magnificat and Benedictus, respectively. We will come to this later, but the names are Latin translations of the first Greek word of each hymn. Magnificat from verse 46, where Mary proclaims, my soul magnifies the Lord. And Benedictus from verse 68, when Zechariah praises God, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. That God can be taken at his word is the theme of the first two chapters of Luke's gospel. That is why one of Luke's favorite word, and you can test, uh, you can, you know, uh, confirm this for yourself. One of his favorite word is the word fulfilled or fulfillment. This happened in fulfillment of. Jesus did this to fulfill the scriptures. Be an interesting exercise and circle the word fulfill or fulfillment and see how many times Luke uses it. God does what he says. 
And that is why we can put our faith in God and why Mary put her faith in God. Something Elizabeth affirms in verse 45, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. When we believe what God says, when we believe that he is who he says he is, the scripture tells us we are blessed. We are blessed. Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus, visits Elizabeth, who was in the sixth month of her pregnancy. She actually ends up staying with her for an additional three months. At the greeting of Mary, John the Baptist right? While in Elizabeth's womb, is doing cartwheels. Why? Because he's in the presence of the Lord, his Lord, his Savior, of the one whom he would say is an adult. He must become greater while I must become lesser. The Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth, and it would seem endows her with supernatural knowledge that Mary is pregnant with Jesus. You know, I put myself in Mary's shoes. How comforting, how reassuring it must have been for Mary to revel in God's mystery with a kindred spirit, someone who believes the story of her supernatural pregnancy. Who would, who would believe such a story? And also, uh, can you see Elizabeth's humility reflected in her feeling, honored to be in the presence of, the, of, of Jesus, her Lord? She said, Oh, just as overjoyed as John the Baptist. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? How desperately we are in need of such depth of wonder, such depth of gratitude, such, such depth of, of appreciation to be in God's presence. We don't, we don't have that, do we? Kind of quite ho-hum about being in God's presence that we are in the most holy place? Has it ever occurred to us that that is such an awesome thing that Jesus has done for us, that by his death on the cross, we have been ushered into the most holy place where the high priest in the Old Testament gets to visit once a year and under a lot of conditions. But in Christ Jesus, we're in his presence 24-7. Where is the depth of wonder? Where is the depth of gratitude? Where is the depth of appreciation that we ought to have? We don't. And I'm not condemning us because I don't have that either. But I think we need to cry out to the Lord and help ask God to help us see how precious it is that we are found in God's very presence. Following this, we have the Magnificat. And the Benedict is written after the birth of John. You'll need to read this on your own because this morning I'm just going to make brief references to it and note some similarities and differences between the two songs. Firstly, Mary, Mary and Zechariah react in love and praise to the Lord. Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices In God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary, simply overwhelmed by God's display of undeserved grace and mercy in choosing her to be the mother of Jesus, the Messiah. But it is not just her, but all who fear the Lord, who are objects of God's grace and mercy. For Zechariah, 
His hymn of praise was in response to God's display of undeserved grace and mercy in coming to earth to offer his salvation to everyone who believes. Praise be the Lord, he exclaimed, the God of Israel, because he's come to his people and redeemed them. Verse 68. The second thing we note is that Mary and Zechariah fully understand that their sons are a fulfillment of God's ancient promises he swore to Abraham and his descendants. That is why both hymns of praise drip with over, uh, Old Testament verses and imagery. Mary pens the following in verse 54. He has helped to serve in Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Even though Mary is young, she knows the Scripture very thoroughly. And I encourage us to do the same. A, knowing the Scriptures is not an age thing, but it's an, a, an attitude of the heart that reveals whether we're hungry for God's Word. So she, Mary, young as she was, knew her Scriptures. Zechariah concurs with Mary, writing in verses 69, 72, and 73, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David to show mercy to our ancestors, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. The next thing we note is this. While Mary's song is more personal and about God's general acts in the world, Zechariah's song anticipates and gives an overview of the ministry of John and Jesus. Another thing we note, while Mary's magnificent is a personal hymn of thanksgiving, Zechariah's Benedictus is a hymn of praise on behalf of the nation of Israel. Each of the hymns sees the coming of the Messiah as both the victory for the humble and needy and a defeat for the enemies of God's people. But if I were to sum up these two hymns of praise, it is this. God's will, God's ways, and God's timing can be trusted completely and absolutely, and therefore, therefore, have faith in God. If I can sum up these two hymns of praise, it'd be this, that God's ways, God's will, God's timing can be trusted completely, therefore, have faith in God. Mary, Zachariah, and Elizabeth all reached this conclusion. Not Zachariah initially. He was filled with unbelief, but after a long, silent retreat lasting nine months, a righteous man that he is, he learns from his mistake. He learns his lesson, and he expresses it in his song. But putting our faith in God's will, God's ways, and timing is so hard to do for the reason that I had mentioned earlier. It is so counterintuitive to our very self-determined DNA. Why would we give up the driver's seat and move to the back seat? Why depend on God when we can depend on ourselves? Why would we move from the known, predictable, familiar to the unknown, unpredictable and unfamiliar, like Abraham that we heard the first week 
of our service in January. Why? What was he thinking? Moving his entire family from a secure, settled life to go to a destination yet to be revealed to him. You know, God didn't say to him, Abraham, uproot yourself and go to such and such a place. He just said, Abraham, uproot yourself and your family, leave your family's land, leave your home, sell up, and follow me. That was all the instruction he was given. Why did he do that? Putting everything on the line for a voice he thought he'd heard. And you can add to the list so many people from the Bible who made a similar decision, like Abraham, people like Moses. He, he was loving life. Maybe not loving life. That might be stretching it a bit. But he was comfortable being a shepherd where he was. He was away from Egypt, away from Pharaoh. He knew he would be safe where he was. And then God shows up through a burning bush and goes, ta-da, I want you to go back. What would you do? What would you have done? It's funny, you know, you might say, yeah, if God revealed himself in a burning bush, I, I would do what God says. I don't know whether you've ever thought, you know, Jesus, God, if, if, you, if, you, if I can see you, if I can see you, if I can speak to you like a person, then obeying you would be much easier. Have you ever said that? Have you ever thought that? If I could see some manifestations, some amazing manifestations of your power, I, 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 I would obey you. And we so easily forgot what happened to the people of Israel. What did they see? They saw incredible displays of God's power, didn't they? Didn't they? A pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. I mean... The things that they saw, you and I would dream of seeing. They saw all of that, and yet they were full of unbelief. Questioning God every step of the way. What about the disciples? They saw Jesus in the flesh. They saw him walking on water. They saw him feeding 5,000 people, minimum of 5,000 people. And what happened? They were disobedient, weren't they? They questioned Jesus a lot of the times. They were full of doubts all of the time. Even after Jesus was resurrected, what, what, what did Thomas say? Oh, he's resurrected until I see him, until I can touch him, until I can feel him. I'm not going to believe. So maybe seeing God, feeling God, getting more of a sense of God might not be as helpful to having faith in God as you might think. That you still need to exercise faith in God. It is hard to do because of our self-determined DNA. We have Moses. We have all the prophets. The Daniel, Daniel and his three friends all putting their lives on the line because they heard God speak. I can well imagine people saying to Zechariah and Elizabeth, how is God good to you when after all that you do for him, you're still without a child? 
Remember, they were old in age. They, they were beyond the ability to bear children, okay? I'm not talking about when, when Zechariah got news. I'm talking about before. How on earth can you conclude and believe that God is good to you when despite all that you do for Him, you're still childless? And as I said last week, having children was not just a personal uh, fulfillment of a dream and desire. It was, it was a disgraceful thing if you were not able to bear children. How can He let you suffer the disgrace of childlessness? You've been ripped off big time. Give up on God. He's not worthy of your time. He's not worthy of your worship. Go find yourselves another God to worship. And Mary, what a tough assignment she was given to bear a son as a virgin, knowing fully that she will most likely become the object of much taunts and much ridicule. Questions about God's will, God's way, God's timing would have flooded their minds and Mary's mind. But she fully and willingly submits to God, saying, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be, may your word to me be fulfilled. That's what she said to the angel. I don't understand God's ways. I don't understand God's will. I don't understand God's timing. But I am the Lord's servant. May what God says to me, may what God expects of me, may he grant me the grace to submit to it. And this is the key truth we must grasp about our relationship with God. And it's something the likes of Abraham's, the Moses, all the prophets of old, Daniel and his three friends, Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Jesus' disciples, Paul had to learn to grasp. And it is this, that God is the potter, and we are the clay in the work of his hand, that he is the creator, and we are the created, that he does not serve at our pleasure, but rather we serve at his pleasure. He's not dependent on us. Whereas we are completely dependent on Him, our lives belong to God. It's not ours to do as we wish and as we want. We have been crucified with Christ, Paul says, and therefore it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and that the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave Himself up for me. See, self-determination is based on the notion that the person I trust most to know what's best and good for me is me. But in Christ Jesus, we discover that that is not true. There's someone else who loves us absolutely and wisely. He trumps us in that department hands down. The blogger I mentioned at the start of my sermon writes that despite the negative connotation it carries biblically, submission is sub subordinating your life to the will of another without fear or coercion. That requires a degree of trust because you have to believe that it's for your good. How can you trust God if you doubt that he desires your best? How can you trust God if you don't believe that God is for you, not against you? Thankfully, my children provide an object lesson in the childlike faith we require to trust God. Although I'm flawed, they believe I want their best. So they trust me implicitly. Children may do this naively, but Jesus wants us to emulate them in our relationship with him. 
So those are your key questions. If we are to have faith in God, then fundamentally we need to ask ourselves, do you believe that God is for you and not against you? Do you believe that God is good and there's no darkness in his heart whatsoever? Do you believe that God desires your very best? Because if you don't, then it's going to be difficult to have faith in God. You remember the part in the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy are feeling very excited about meeting Aslan, who represents Jesus. But they're also feeling very nervous and very apprehensive at the same time. They come upon Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who are very familiar with Aslan. They know Aslan. Lucy asks, is he a man? Aslan, a man? Mr. Beaver replied sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son and son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know he's the, who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. They had a Scottish accent, I believe. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what, Mr. Be- must, what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. Safe. But he's good. He's good. He's the good king. He's the king. I tell you, following Jesus is not safe. You know that. Because he will disrupt your life. So if you're following Jesus thinking that... Uh, yeah, everything will be predictable. Uh, you might want to think again. If you're serious about following the Lord, if we're serving at his pleasure, then Jesus is not safe. But he's good. He's good. As we grow in our confidence that God loves us and desires our best, the less we need to be self determined. Does that make sense? The more we grow in our confidence that God is who he says he is and that he desires our very best, then the less self-determined we need to be in our relationship with God and the more we will, and the more we trust him, the more we're able to enjoy every good gift that comes our way without turning them into ultimate things and yet accept whatever painful and confusing things we experience, whether we understand them or not, because God desires our best. Even though we don't understand why a particular thing is happening to us that we find painful and confusing. So for your application this week, I commend to you two questions. It's in the news bulletin. If you're on our email list, you would have received them. But those who rather not like digital copies, Sue 
has made uh, physical copies, hard copies, and they're on the disk. What aspect of God's character do you see in today's message? How might that impact your trust in God? What aspect of God's character do you see in the passage of Scriptures that we work through this morning or in the message that you heard? And how does that impact your trust in God? Number two, what aspect of yourself do you see in today's message? And how does it impact your trust in God? Yeah? They're very simple questions. But where you go with the questions, how honestly you answer those questions will have a significant consequence in your life. And we need to be honest when we come to God's Word. Besides, God knows us inside out anyways. So you can't hide from Him. So might as well come clean with God and say, God, this is where I'm at. I do not trust you. This is where I'm at. I am so full of myself. I just trust in myself so much. I think I trust you, but at the end of the day, I trust me more. Because the moment I see something out of my control, I withdraw my trust immediately. I see it time and time and time and time again. I see it, and I want to be ruthlessly honest with myself. You already know it, but I need to be honest with myself that I am like the people of Israel. I am like the disciples a lot of the times. And I don't know why you bother loving me, but you do. You love me still. But God, I have an issue of faith, of trusting you. I don't trust you. Or I only trust you when things go exactly as I planned. But the moment that changes, I'm out. You know that. But I want to change. Because you said, Jesus, have faith in God. And I'm not doing too well in that apartment. I want to change. I want to grow. Yeah? So I urge us to take what you've heard seriously this morning and process it with the Lord. Father, we hand over the meal that we've been served today. Lord, it's easy to eat what we have received, what we have been served, and walk out and go, wow, that was a great meal, wasn't it? And forget everything that you're saying to us. Forget the pertinent things you're saying to us. And so I ask that you, in your mercy and grace, would remind us of what we have heard today. Holy uh, Jesus, in your discourse, in John 14, 15, 16, one of the things you said was that the Holy Spirit would be with us to remind us to be our advocate, to be our teacher, to be our counselor, to remind us of the things that we have heard. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, to do that because we will forget. But help us not forget. Help us not forget, Holy Spirit. Bring what we've heard today to mind. Help us be not hearers of the word only, but be doers. Because only by being doers of the word will we experience your grace and change from the inside out. I ask this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. 
Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.